your host, Sierra Cornell, and welcome to Songwriters Unblocked. With new episodes released weekly, the show is an in-depth exploration of the songwriting process. I interview writers from all genres and backgrounds, and we have conversations on the ins and outs of inspiration, effective storytelling, overcoming writer's block, and more. From the nuts and bolts of songwriting theory to the emotional side of putting your hopes and fears out into the world, I go deep with each one of my guests to uncover what it means to be a songwriter. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Bob Reagan is a Grammy-nominated and Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame-nominated songwriter from Nashville, Tennessee. He has over 200 songs recorded by contemporary country artists such as Keith Urban, Luke Bryan, and Jake Owen, and by legendary artists ranging from Kenny Rogers to Roy Rogers, Andy Williams to Hank Williams Jr., His hits include You're Everything by Keith Urban, Thinking About You by Trisha Yearwood, Busy Man by Billy Ray Cyrus, Something About a Woman by Jake Owen, Running Out of Reasons to Run by Rick Trevino, Soon by Tanya Tucker, and many others, garnering him 11 ASCAP Most Performed Awards. Reagan has also been a recording artist on Curb Records, a guitarist on the Grand Ole Opry, an adjunct professor of songwriting at Belmont University in Nashville, and a three-term president of the board of the Nashville Songwriters Association. In 2012, Reagan founded Operation Song, a nonprofit with the mission to empower veterans, active duty military, and their families to tell their stories through the process of songwriting. Hi, Bob. Welcome to Songwriters Unblocked. Uh, Happy to be here. I'm I'm feeling a little blocked today, but that's okay. Maybe by the end of the conversation, (laughs) we can rectify that. We'll work through it. (laughs) Exactly. So the first question I ask everybody on this show is, what was the first song you ever wrote? Oh, wow. Um, well, I was not a country music songwriter, but my first country song I ever wrote was a country song called Hard Liquor, Soft Music. You get it? Hard, soft. Yeah. Uh, so I, overall, it wasn't too horrible. Uh, my, my truly horrible songs began once I started trying to be a songwriter. Mm. When I was just goofing around and doing what I, what felt right, then some of those were actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What happened when you started trying to be a songwriter? Well, I pro- probably once I started trying to be a Nashville songwriter because I had just kind of written for our original band in Northern California. Uh, we played in the bars and I wrote songs for that and just kind of, if it felt right to me and the audience responded, I felt like I was on the right track. Uh, once I moved to Nashville, I kind of started wanting to be a staff songwriter. I knew I kind of had to keep things in a certain, in between certain rails. And then I kind of discarded all my, I discarded some of my instincts and tried to work to a system. So for the first couple of years, I actually, there were good songs in there. They weren't all horrible. But uh, some of them did not need to be written. Let's just put it that way. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And then once I got a little more comfortable in the system and co-writing and kind of understood what the market was and what my skill set was and got that Venn diagram, got the circles to align a little better, then um, my song started improving, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that happens to a lot of people when they start doing it, quote unquote, professionally then all of a sudden there are these rules and people are expecting things from you and for you to do, to write in a certain lane. And then 
all those stories get really stuck in your head. It can be hard mm-hmm. to separate yourself. Yes. Um, once you realized what your strengths were and how that aligned to the industry, how did things go from there? And walk us through your career. I mean, you've had such a long and fruitful one. Tell us, tell us more. Well, it's everything that happened to me has been accidental, yet happily so. I never started out with the intention to become a songwriter or even to have a career in the music business. I just started out as a kid with a guitar, liking it and wanted to play. I got to college, um, went to UC Davis back when a B average and a pulse would get you through the door and 81 bucks a quarter. So it was not all that big a deal to go to a UC campus back then. Uh, Mm -hmm. I just kind of played my way through at the end of college. I couldn't bear the thought of going to grad school. So I said, it would just play. I had a a band with a pretty good following. So I just kept playing in the band. We just did cover songs, just kind of our own favorite, weird, eclectic songs. And then we realized, wait a minute, we're never going to get anywhere unless we have songs. So I started writing songs back to my original comments, some of which were actually pretty good. Um, And then the band broke up and I moved to Los Angeles in 1985 the, the idea that I might try to do a, be a solo artist. And I actually got a record deal on Curb Records um, back in the early 80s as a solo artist. But I was, uh, that, that experience proved to me that I was not a, not a recording artist. Um, mm-hmm. Just the demands of it and also the fact that I was, I was a chameleon. If I wanted to be Don Henley one day, Tom Petty the next, Donald Fagan the day after that, I would just kind of do it without thinking who is Bob Regan and what is, what what is the, how can you focus that down to make that potentially commercially viable? Uh, I did, did not figure that out till much later. Uh, but anyway, once that deal was over, I figured my strongest suit was my songwriting. I was not I was an okay singer. I was a pretty good guitar player, but. Um, I figured my, my best day as a songwriter was going to do more than my best day as a guitar player or a singer. So I beat around L.A. trying to make some publishing connections. There still was, in the mid-'80s, there was still a little bit of a country uh, scene in L.A. Uh, there were some uh, country records still coming out of Los Angeles, believe it or not. Uh, but I, m- most of the publishing business was in Nashville. So I made a few trips out there and then said, well, let's, let's give it a whirl. So I moved to Nashville at 36 with broke with two little kids and um, a couple people that had said nice things to me. Uh, and I figured I told my ex-wife at the time, I said, give me three years to write a hit. If I can do it, we'll stick around. If I can't, we'll go home. And I write it three years. So I wrote a hit. So I stuck around. That's great. You've <clears throat> covered all the bases. It sounds like you were an artist. You've... <clears throat> done the LA thing, the Nashville thing. Um, tell us about this hit though. How did you write it? What were the circumstances around it that made it a hit? Walk us through that experience. Um, well, I probably wrote this in my first couple of years in my second publishing deal. Um, I had one short-lived publishing deal and I signed with a woman named Karen Conrad and I was with her for 15 years, <clears throat> and she just kind of believed in what I was doing and gave me enough rope to hang myself or to, you know, or to make a lasso and rope mm-hmm. rope some money. Uh, 
So this song, I'd always kind of been a fan of kind of Patsy Cline and big ballads that um, had some interesting musicality to them. And that songs like that were still getting recorded at the time. <clears throat> and uh, I had this little chord progression that I, not going to say I stole it, but there was a, a songwriter book called the Mickey Baker Jazz Chord Book that a lot of songwriters and not, not song, but guitar players, that was kind of, if you want to learn some jazz chords, that was the way to do it. And I'd seen these three or four chords in there and I strung them together and it was this very nice kind of sophisticated descending pattern. And that was kind of the basis of the song. And I co-wrote it with my friend Ed Hill, who went on to become a very successful songwriter. And this was our first uh, hit that we each of us wrote. Um, and we demoed it, uh, just this beautiful piano ballad with uh, great musicians that I knew at the time, a wonderful singer named Linda Davis, who went on to sing with Reba McIntyre, who was who cut the song, by the way. And the song was just, I think, just achingly beautiful piano ballad, sophisticated. And uh, Reba McIntyre put it on hold. And then much to my surprise, she recorded it and released it as a single. But when I heard the record, I was kind of aghast because they had kind of honky-tonked it up. They put fiddles in the beginning of it and kind of made it a shuffle. And I was just kind of going, oh, my God, they, they've ruined my song. <laughs> and I... I, I told my publisher at the time, I said, you got to let me go talk to the producer. They've got to go back in and recut it. And she said, Bob, <laughs> sit down, shut up. That's not going to happen. Uh, so anyway, it did pretty, I think it got to number three on the charts, which was good, but I would have liked to number one. But that that song was enough to make me feel like, well, if I can do this once, maybe I can do it again. Yeah. And you did it again, right? Uh, sporadically, yeah. but... Uh, I was, we may have talked in our first conversation. I just, I happened to get here at a good time. A lot of music business or probably any success has something to do with timing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got here in 1985. The music business was, country music was pretty, you know, in kind of a, a dip at the point, at that point. Uh, but my Reba record was in 89, and then Garth Brooks came along in about 90, and just, right. it's hard, hard, to, hard to overstate how much he impacted the country music business. Uh, he took everything from here to here. Uh, so my, my next couple of, of records made significantly more money because so many radio stations switched from pop or, you know, adult contemporary, whatever the formats were, they many stations switched over to country and the money quadrupled in a matter of a couple of years, mm -hmm. pretty much due, due in very large part to Garth Brooks. For sure. And how did your career and connections and life overall change after these hits? Because I've talked to a lot of songwriters who say, you know, after that one cut, things really open up and the world really changes for you. It can be really hard to pound down doors beforehand, but all you need is that one name, that one song, and then things really start to start to be, be an option. Um, or, or I guess a lot of more options present themselves, but how is that for you? Well, things, it did get easier, but I think mostly I was easier on myself mm. because now you're, you're probably in your mid twenties at the most, I'm guessing. Yeah. But I, I had beat around in the music business 
until I was 30. I mean, by the time the song was a hit, I was almost 40 years old. Mm. And I was just going, my God, what am I doing? I'm dragging a wife and little kids. And it, it was every year got a little bit better. So I figured like I was going to keep going. But it was just an immense relief to go, OK, if nothing else ever happens, I can put this on the wall, say I wrote one hit song. <laughs> and right. if, if I never if I never write another, that uh, that demon is out of my psyche. Uh, but anyway, it, it did get a little bit easier. People were a little more willing, but it wasn't like, oh, my God, Bob Regan is now golden. Hmm. Um, just, they, they were maybe more willing to listen to my songs. But I, I feel like it was a combination of that and the fact that my writing just improved as I went. Right. Once you get it, once you get a hit song, uh, you're able to write with better collaborators. So, you know, you kind of realize, okay, this is why this worked and this is why this didn't work. So it's a combination of, you know, getting the monkey off your back, getting better collaborators, just getting more understanding of why a hit is a hit. Right. And so you've had a number of hits, a number of great collaborators, all of these things have happened happened for you a bit later in life. What was it like yes. working in the industry as somebody who's older? Well, I think a combination of a couple of things, my immaturity then and now, because mm-hmm. uh, when, when you're 35, if you're young with a, you know, a good, I've always been blessed with good energy and a, a just a very open attitude. You can hang out with people that are 10 years younger than you. So at 35, I could hang out with 25-year-olds, and that was not a big stretch. And people didn't look at me and go, oh, gee, Bob's you know, older than I. We're not going to hang out. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that. So my, my class of 1985, when I got there, I was 36. Most of my contemporaries were 23, 24, 25. But we just kind of, that, that wasn't an issue. We just hung out together and wrote together. And there were some people my age. So I, I didn't feel like my age worked against me. In fact, <clears throat> as back to my original comment about happy accidents, I think the fact that I was older when I got here, I, I had a like a 30-year career, which spit me out the back end with a Medicare card. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like, hallelujah. Whereas I, I think some people come and if they're hot they get hot in their mid-20s by the time they're 40 they're washed up they're going hell what happened now what do I do right. so I, I was I was lucky to have a slow build and a longer arc that started late as yeah. a songwriter not in the music business mm-hmm. I hear that from a lot of older songwriters who are relatively grateful that they were in the business at, at a later age um and that even having kids can be grounding and give you structure and something else to work for other than yourself. Um, so I, I just love hearing people's experiences who do this older because all of us young people are like, oh my God, I'm 25 and I don't have any hits. And it's like, well, calm down. <laughs> Your life isn't over yeah. yet. So, and, I, and I will say by, by having a family, it was a really scary to be, feel like I was yeah. responsible for you know, not completely, but for keeping the lights on. Uh, but it, <clears throat> it was grounding. Yeah. Because I yeah. Also always figured, you know, I said, even b- before anything happened, I went, you know what? No matter what else happens, 
I feel like I'm being a good dad. We have, you know, we got a roof over our head. We have the occasional happy meal. And yeah. uh, so, so that that part was good. And, and the other thing, as a songwriter in Nashville, at the time, I can't really speak to what it is now, but whatever sanity, lifestyle sanity there existed kind of was in the songwriting world where you could go to Music Row or get, get off, coach your kids' baseball game, soccer game, you know, be there for the dance recital or whatever that was. So I was able to have a semi-normal uh, home life. Yeah, absolutely. That's Except not counting the divorces, of course. Yeah, <laughs> an, an integral part of right. anybody in the music business. Not not everybody, but for me, yeah, I want to overgeneralize. Yeah, I liked what you said about the hit making you easier on yourself because we're mm-hmm. the this industry is very unforgiving and more than anyone who throws hate our way, I think we throw the most hate at ourselves, and it can be really discouraging because you're not ever really pointed in the right direction so confidently by one person or other. You just have to trust yourself and trust that you're doing the right thing and that you're making the right choices and meeting the right people. And it can be really scary to have to rely on yourself for everything. Um, And then being able to find those people that you do trust to to give you that feedback and encouragement. Um, But what's your experience been like with uh, the more internal world of songwriting and self-judgment and doubt and all of that? Well, that that never goes away. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think. I mean, I was I was raised Catholic, so very much the mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've never never gotten a big head. Um, <clears throat> uh, although a little aside, I've come to appreciate big egos. They used to really rub mm-hmm. me the wrong way, but now if I if someone comes along and walks in a room and goes, "Here I am," I want to go. My first thought would be. What a jerk! And then you go. You know what? Maybe he is. Maybe he is the one. Mm-hmm. Then you, you, you got to follow it up. But if you can come in, say I'm the one you've been waiting for, and then follow it up with with something freaking great, yeah. then ha- hallelujah. But people yeah. in the music business kind of want to be sold, especially you know the publishers and the managers. They're they're salespeople, and nobody loves the sales pitch like a salesman. So if you can come in there, if you come in like a humble supplicant and go, please like my little song, I think it's pretty good. Well, I'm not sure about the second verse, but you know what? Forget it. But if you come in there and go, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I got this smash hit that's going to take your artist from here to here. People go, thank God, I've been waiting for you. Mm. So don't don't yeah. be overly humble. Now, I I, I digressed and I forgot the question. I, I, <laughs> my, my internal, how did... Rephrase the question, please. No, that was great. I I just was wondering how you've dealt with that self doubt and that questioning and and needing to to find your own confidence and not really rely on the industry to give it to you. You know, you always do. You've got to have if you want to be a commercial songwriter, you've got to have some commercial success. Mm-hmm. Um. I think at any point in my career, after one, two, three, or four hits, if they had just stopped coming and all of a sudden people just started going, I don't think so, and you know, months, years would go by without anything happening, I, I would have packed it up. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. Have, I would have just gone, okay, I can always write songs, but if I want to write commercial songs, 
and actually be remunerated for my work, then it's it's got to happen in this in these lanes. And if it's not happening, then it's time to pack it up. And for me, I got far enough down the road where it just stopped happening. My activity got less and less. And um, but at that point, I was able to be kind of philosophical and stoic about it and go, well, I I had my run and um, I'm not going to be bitter or pissed off. But I could only do that because I had, you know, several hit records and, you know, was not an idiot with my money. Right, right. Yeah, that's a key thing, the money. That Mm -hmm. is something that I think a lot of songwriters fail to be honest with themselves about it about and also just lack a lot of understanding of how it works, especially nowadays with streaming and money being very hard to find. Uh, How have you dealt with the financial side of being a songwriter? Well, again, when I did it, there was the mechanicals. I'm assuming people know what a mechanical is. Mm-hmm. Mechanical royalties. When I was doing it, there were performances, i.e., hit record, ASCAP, uh, radio play, little TV play, maybe, or mechanicals, which were sales of CDs, which and a lot of CDs sold back then. So, in my era, and I'm sorry to, if I'm uh, making any current songwriters shake their head and go, I'm, I'm too late. Mm-hmm. Um, you could write a, there were a lot of artists that were selling platinum CDs back then. And if you were a, it was a two-way right. And the other thing, most of the rights were two ways back when I was doing it. So I could have a a two-way right where I had my writer share on a million-selling CD that paid like $20,000, $23,000. So a couple of those or a couple of that and a gold record or a, well, a decent song record would pay off my draw every year. So I wasn't digging a big hole with my publisher. Uh so that was really lucky. Then when you had a hit record, that was kind of gravy. And mm-hmm. for me, I, I, I had not made any money for so long that when money came in, it was like, oh, my God, I know how hard this was to get. I'm going to set it aside, tick my lifestyle up a little bit, maybe pave the driveway, uh, right. <laughs> and then save the rest to see if I can get my kids through college uh, and have me not be eating cat food mm-hmm. at the age I am now. Right, right. So I was I was conservative financially, but I do know a lot of people that had a hit. They bought the Harley, they bought the boat, they paid off their girlfriend's student loans, they bought a house, and then next year they didn't have a hit. It was like, oh, my God. And yeah. it, it, everything flipped on its head. Yeah. So a note to any songwriters, if you do make any money, Spend a little bit of it, go have a big old party, take a trip, enjoy yourself, and then set some aside and do it again. Yeah, do it again. That's the that's the key. I think once you have that one hit, you're like, oh, well, others are guaranteed, but nothing is guaranteed no. in this business. So and be smart thing, when it does come. You may have captured just a moment where the market wanted that particular song, but not really what your strong suit was because mm. as a songwriter you're writing songs in a continuum the, yeah. the, the 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 people that i saw that really knocked the lights out and i was not one of those where your skill set and your instincts perfectly align with the market and you're doing this 
and you're taking a ride because the market wants your instincts and what the market wants happen to be perfectly aligned. And then there's a little, eventually there's going to be a little separation and you can kind of reach and, and make up the diff by writing savvy and co-writing wisely and strategically. But at some point, if your instincts are just away from where the market is, you're, you're kind of sunk. Yeah, for sure. Commercially, commercially, you can always write songs. You can, you can write whatever you want. Nobody's holding a gun to your head saying write a commercial song, uh, except maybe <laughs> the, the, the writer themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's important to evaluate honestly where your instincts and your strengths lie and see how that lines up to the market. And then, like you said, if they're lagging a little bit, co-write smartly, do what you can to practice uh, the styles that you need to that maybe aren't your strong suit and just be be very honest about it because I think too many people just think that whatever they're doing is going to eventually line up and, it, and that's not necessarily the case. It's, it's a business at the end of the day. And also, you got to just listen to music, listen to what's mm -hmm. coming out, listen to just expand your musical horizons um, because everybody kind of, you do have your own lane and the things you like, but it, I always would try to read a lot, just get outside my comfort zone, listen to music. I it was not something I would normally want to listen to, but I would, I would always find something and then, oh, wow. That I'm not that I'm going to rip that off or imitate it, but it just sparked something that would make me take me in a different direction. Absolutely. So you've had a lot of publishing deals over the course of your career. Why don't you tell us how you got those? What decisions you had to make uh, when signing with certain people? Walk us through your your process of of the different deals that you've had. Well, when when you phrased it that way, I've had a lot of places. Bob, you've been dropped a lot of times, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I have I have been dropped a few times. Uh, my very first publishing deal was with Dick James Music, and Dick James, uh, this is ancient history, but uh, he was signed Lennon and McCartney when they were still playing at the Cavern. Mm. Wise move. Also, off to the side, uh, Elton John and Bernie Toppin for a hundred bucks a week. Wow. Which they which they fought like hell to get out of those contracts for years and never could. <laughs> they were in, they were industry standard. Anyway, so I signed with uh I just when I first got to town, uh you could you could just go play songs for publishers. It was a, it was wide open. That that doesn't happen anymore. Actually, my first connection with Dick, Dick James came to them. I sent him a cassette through the mail. And they call me back. Well, that will not happen. <laughs> I don't You're think not that's going to happen. anything through the mail anymore. <laughs> in, in 2023. Yeah. Uh, but they kind of listened to what I was doing and had me come in and play songs. And then I got, you know, maybe three or four other publishers that were doing the same thing that were kind of thought, well, this guy's maybe got something, but we haven't heard the song yet. So one day I happened to wrote a song. I wrote a song that... It kind of from one day to the next, I had like three publishing offers. So I think people kind of looked at me. This guy's maybe he's maybe okay, but we're we're not willing to spend any money, take that risk on him. But yeah. that particular song, they said, let's yeah, well, let's do something. But do it doing something. I might add at that point was a hundred dollars a week mm -hmm. for a, a full grown man with two little kids. 
so it was not enough to live on by any stretch. But I, I was so stoked to have a publishing deal and be able to say that. Again, that was one of the monkey off my back. Uh, and that, this, this can happen, and it's a reason why people change publishing companies. The people that signed me, uh, something happened top down, and they both got let go. So I was orphaned in that publishing mm-hmm. deal. So once that happened, they just they didn't care about me. And when my option came up, I got booted out. And I figured, I'm done for. It's horrible. It's the end of the world. And uh, a friend of mine told me about a woman, Karen Conrad, who I mentioned earlier, uh, and her husband, David. They were both they had different, different companies, but they were uh, very, very legendary publishers in Nashville. And uh, she heard what I did, and she said, let's do something. And I got bumped up to 150 a week. Woo. Party. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was just incredibly grateful. And in that, probably the first year I wrote my Reba McIntyre single, but it took a year or so to happen. But um, but after the really the, the first year, I had not had no activity. And I went to Karen. I just said, well, it's been nice writing for you. And, you know, I wish, wish we could have made it happen. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you're going to drop me, right? She said, oh, hell no. <laughs> we're just getting we're just getting started. So 15 years later, uh, so she, I stayed with her for a long time. Our little company did very well. Uh, BMG bought us, but it was kind of they bought us, but they took the man, the leadership team, Karen and Ron, our publisher. They took over BMG. Then things we did well there. Um, but I just there was a, a point at, at probably almost 20 years into Nashville. And I felt like I was at a publishing company. I was doing very well. I was being very well paid. But I could tell I was not the priority anymore because they feel like, well, here's Bob. He's got he's up here at this level. We're going to devote all our energy and attention to the young guys coming up, which is you, you kind of have to do it. So I figured, you know what, if I'm going to if I'm going to bail out, I better do it now. So at that point, I went to a company called Famous Music, which is now rolled into Sony. Uh, had five years. OK, there. Uh, a few hits, but it was at this point I could feel my career was not doing this anymore. It was kind of doing a slow this. Um, so I, the people always liked me. They like what I did. I had a five years there, another five years at a company called Full Circle, and then they sold. And at that point, I kind of went, you know what? I, I think I got my Medicare card. I think I'm out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that that was kind of my publishing deal. Uh, really, I found people that believed in me. I felt like, you know, people, these, these people I knew for a while that said, you know, I would really want to work with you. And I knew them, I trusted them, and I knew they had great track records and were just were song people instead of, I feel like there's song people and then there's copyright people. Mm. Some people love songs and songwriters. Some people love copyrights. Yeah. So yeah. I, I look for I look for song people, and I was lucky to find them. Yeah, find your song people. I like that. Yeah, that's great. So that one song that got people's attention to get you that first deal. What was different mm-hmm. about that song? I just think it was tighter. I uh, looking back, um, it was kind of a turn on a phrase. It was called "Without Saying." You know, I don't have to tell her she's pretty. I don't have to do this. She knows it goes without saying. Mm. And then I just kept rolling along and I was being a big more. The guy, 
the, the guy in the song was more and more of a jerk without, <laughs> without ever saying. And then at the end of the song, she left without saying. Mm. Uh, so, I, but it was a, a beautiful demo. My friend Billy Dean sang it. Uh, and it just sounded like a hit. Mm. So it was, it was never cut. Maybe it wasn't a hit, but it sounded like one to enough people. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that I, I think that was what that was what worked for that song. Gotcha. Just you can write a you can write a, a very compelling song, but you got to have a compelling demo of it to make it sound like a hit. There's a world full of songs, and that, there's some hit productions that are mediocre songs. Mm-hmm. There's some great songs that have mediocre production and don't do anything. Yeah, absolutely. That's super true. It the the whole thing needs to sound cohesive and and yes, having that got, production yeah. is really important. It's gotta be of a piece. And back then production was really, you know, you put a band of you know great players and in a studio, put the chart in front of them, count to four and boom. It happens now. I'm, I'm sure you program a lot. It's a lot, a, a completely different way of doing demos. But back then, it was the production was was in very definite parameters where there were six or seven country instruments, and they all had had to sound like what they were. And again, so if you just got a band of great players, and uh, just play them the song and say, "Boys, go." Yeah, and I, I I could speak the language because I, I did I played in the studio for many years when I first got to Nashville to help augment my hundred dollars a week. Yes. So I kind of I kind of knew, knew the studio language. And I knew how to talk to musicians, and I had some production ideas. But the production is nothing like it is today. Yeah, it's a very very different world. Yes. So I've been I've actually started to my surprise writing some songs, but. Um, that's the good news. The bad news is that I've been listening to a whole bunch of music, mostly pop, and I listen to the production, and I go, I, okay, I, I can get here, but I want to be here, and I'm trying to bridge that gap, and it's it's, it's hard work. Yeah. You can, yeah. See, my, you can see my tear-stained <laughs> keyboard back there. <laughs> We've all got one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after you ended your last publishing deal and said... Okay, you know, seems like my time is my time has come to step out. What did you do? Tell us about your work afterwards. Uh, well, kind of right, maybe a couple of years before the end of my last deal, I had um, I was probably signed until 2012, 13, 14, something like that. Um, but I. Uh, I'd done several armed forces entertainment tours, which are kind of like USO. You travel around the world to military bases. Uh, We had a a songwriter band. And for anybody that's familiar with country music from a little while back, there was a song called Riding with Private Malone, which is about a soldier. uh, Mm -hmm. And it was a hit song. And a friend of mine wrote, wrote that song. So that was kind of his entree to the military community. So they said, why don't you put together a songwriter band? You can travel around. So we each played each other's hits. I was a bass player. You don't want to hear me play bass, by the way. Uh, But anyway, I met uh, countless men and women in in the military with amazing stories. And I thought, well, what would happen if we combine these amazing stories with amazing storytellers? And uh, 
help maybe bring some of the the healing that songwriters get by processing their own emotions, experiences, traumas, triumphs. Uh, but I, I never intended for it to become a thing. I just thought, let's try it. And I went to the VA and uh, down just south of Nashville. They said, let's give it a try. And it was immediately met with a wonderful response from the veterans uh, and the therapists and then the military community. So it just kind of snowballed. And uh, I kind of did more and more of it. And again, my songwriting career was pretty much winding down at that point. And uh, so I just was looking for something else to throw myself into. And I, and I did. Uh, I, I had this called Operation Song. If you're wasting time on the Internet, and I know you all are, <laughs> feel free to uh, look it up and hear some of the songs. We've written 1,500 songs at this point with uh, veterans of World War II, Korea, Iraq, Vietnam, Afghanistan, uh, families, Gold Star families uh, have been very, very effective. So I, I'm really, really proud of that. But the, the reason I did it was not, okay, I'm going to start a nonprofit. I had no idea what that entailed. But having sort of been an entrepreneur of sorts, if you are if you start an enterprise and it wants to go and it seems like there's momentum behind it and people coming along to help push, then it was like for me, I said, well, hell yeah, we can, let, let's do this. Because it wants to happen. So many right. things in life don't want to happen, and you're just, you know, <laughs> hammering. Nothing. You can't. You can't break the rock. But this one worked, and people came along to help. So, anyway, ten years later, I finally retired from that. So now I'm fully retired. And I, I got it staffed and funded, uh, and I, I realized, well, this is. I did everything myself for probably the first eight years, and it was kind of grinding me down because I was essentially a songwriter being an admin, executive director, program director, social media director, bookkeeper, all these just emails and details all day, every day, which was crushing me. (laughs) So I I figured I've either got to just let this thing collapse or I've got to work triply hard to get, get it funded and staffed and walking on its own. So we're ha- happily we are doing this. We're now, I'm a year and a half out, and the organization is doing better than it ever has. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I uh, dabbled in the nonprofit world for a second, and then COVID ended up uh, shutting everything down. So I know oh, so much work, so much time, so many, um, so many skills that you have to to learn and build completely outside of your, your creative skills. So, um, props to you for doing that and, you know, helping people process their stories. I think that's a really, really great thing. Um, what else have you done, um, in the songwriting world outside of this project or outside of, um, the actual writing? Um, well, the only other thing I did, uh, I, I got involved Again, by accident, everything is by accident. Mm-hmm. Remember that uh, <clears throat> with the Nashville Songwriters Association, mm-hmm. and I was on the. I, somebody asked me to be on the board, and I did that. And I, I don't I have no idea what being on the board entails, but uh, I end up being the president uh, for a couple, three years in the early two thousands, right when uh, Napster was rearing its ugly head and I- illegal downloading, peer to peer. It was just eviscerating the music business. So I was kind of on the fr- I was kind of on the front lines of that 
and then for maybe three years after I was uh, out, out of the presidency, I was the legislative director. So I went to D.C. hundreds of times, lobbying on behalf of songwriters um, to try to explain to them the value of copyright um, and why, you know, just peer to peer was, you know, my, my main point was always people, other people are making a fortune. If, if nobody wants my music, then that's fine. I'll pack it in and go home. But if, if I could pull up my, say my Keith Urban hit at the time, <clears throat> that was my example. I pull it up seven out of the 10 top results on Google. I won't say anything bad about Google. Alive. Um, seven out of the 10 top results on the Google homepage were infringing peer to peer sites. And every one of those sites you click through and they're loaded with, with uh, ads for Princess Cruises, Lysol, Bank of America. I'm going, people are making money off this, but it, none of it's getting back to the creators. So that was always my uh, battle cry when, when going up to DC and, and trying to. You know, get people to, to do something. But I think finally there's been some legislation, but I did notice, and this has proven to be true back at the time, streaming was in its infancy. And I said, I know exactly what they're doing. They are wait. All these tech companies knew that they were absolutely infringing. They were in violation of Copyright Act, that something was going to be done. But the longer they could push it off and make us have to compete with free, the lower the race would be when they finally had to come to the table and they finally came to the table and now songwriters are making micro pennies. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was very intentional, but the good news is the artists are making through streaming are making, you know, sound exchange. If you're an artist and you have significant streaming, you're making uh, good money. A lot of legacy artists who are making nothing are now, uh, you know, finally for the first time seeing some, uh, you know, some of the gains of their amazing recordings from all the years that they as artists got zip. So it's constantly evolving. And I, I feel like I, I did my little part. That's great. I have <clears throat> always been very interested in, in the legislative side of things because it's such a, such a problem for so many people. And, and it's so, I mean, so many different people have, interests in it for whatever self-serving reason. And um, it is something that will have to be changed on the, the legal side in order for songwriters well, to see. The thing is, tech leaps ahead in yeah. giant bounds exactly. and the legislative, the legal and legislative process just very slowly tries to keep up. And by the, by the time they draft something, it's already obsolete. <laughs> well, well right. one other thing we, we did do that I was very proud of, uh, we actually passed a law that changed the tax code. If any songwriters out there are lucky enough to write some hits and sell a catalog, you will have us to thank because it used to be when you sold a catalog, it was taxed at regular income. Now, because of our legislation, it's taxed at capital gains rate, mm -hmm. which is about half. So it's too complicated to get into, but I can... You can give out my contact email, and if somebody wants to know more, I'll be happy to do a deep dive, a deep dive on that. Deep dive into capital I, gain tax. <laughs> yes, and into, change, into changing the IRS tax code. Well, props to you that I, I feel like the changing the IRS on anything is is quite a an undertaking. So, um, 
it's it's awesome to hear that you you fought for songwriters in in all of those ways. Um, what advice do you have for songwriters who are just starting out? Maybe songwriters that are a bit more established who don't have a hit yet. What would you have to say to all of our listeners? Well, I, I think <clears throat> first off, if you're just just starting out, find people who can give you honest feedback because you're, you probably think your stuff is great. Your family might love it, but find somebody who's a little, a few rungs up the ladder from where you are and say, please be honest with me, help me get better. And don't, if somebody, you know, makes comments about your songs, don't get angry. If, and I, what I, I used to have a rule, I would play a song for people. If one person said something about it, that was kind of pissed me off. I would blow it off. But if two or more people said the same thing or roughly the same thing about a song, okay, maybe they're right. So get feedback from people that are where you want to be, not where you are now. Uh, and then for people that are just starting out, you have to align yourself with other people that are that you feel like have something to offer. You, you, you can't do it by yourself. I think especially now with co-writing, with production, um, and find find your pod and then try to catch a ride in each other's slipstream. Uh, find somebody that's a great producer, somebody that's a great singer, somebody that maybe just got an entry-level publishing deal and then just kind of try to build upon the network that you have now. But I mean, keep reaching, I, I always try to keep reaching up there, try to get somebody that's four or five rungs up the ladder to get them to listen to you and collaborate. But find the find the people that are that you feel like are going somewhere and that are talented and align with them and to fill out what whatever you feel like. If you have a not not a weak spot where if you have a strong suit, find somebody if your strong suit's melody, find somebody who's a, a great lyricist and vice versa. <clears throat> yeah. Absolutely. And I, I I will point out that it took me I thought I was a melody writer as well as a lyric writer until about 10 years in, even after I'd written melodies to songs that were hits. I finally realized it seemed like the further the further up the pyramid you get, the more you realize, wait a minute, I've I'm really I'm better at this than I'm than I'm at, at that. Like for me, I realized even though I could write a melody and I had written melodies, I was not likely to have an intuitive leap melodically. I could work it out. I could grind it out. I could see why something worked, why it didn't. But it wasn't an intuitive leap. Whereas lyrically, I felt like I could just kind of, oh, my God, did I just write that? And I mm -hmm. never did that melodically. So once I, once I figured that out, I would still bring something to the table melodically, but I would always find people that, were, that I knew could bring that part of it home. And then that that was that that was a, a help, yeah. but you don't know that stuff until you get far enough. Yeah, and you you, like you, you said, just got to keep going. Absolutely, and like you said, getting that feedback and hearing what people are saying is super helpful. Because if you just write in your bedroom and don't let the songs hear the light of day, but you're just sending them out to publishers and not hearing anything back, uh, that collaboration mm -hmm. element of things is essential, and and knowing when to trust feedback and when to follow your own 
instinct about it. I, I love what you said about uh, if one person in the room says something about it, you maybe take it or leave it. But if two or more, yeah. then they're probably onto something. Yeah. Um, and try, try to be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I noticed a lot of beginning writers, especially in country, you're more pop in L.A., but mm-hmm. I used to go, when I was with NSA, I'd go do song critiques. Somebody would hand me a lyric and I'd look at it and I just, my heart would sink because it was like a, a eight by 10 page of, you know, 12 font, <laughs> just all oh, this lyric, lyric, lyric. I'm going, no, oh, for God's sake. And I'd always yeah. pull out a type, I typed up, I will always love you by Dolly Parton just to have handy. And I pull it out, say, how much of the page does that take up? Right, right. About a, about a quarter of it. <laughs> and how much, how much did she accomplish in that quarter of a page? Yeah. You know? Yep. Exactly. So don't be afraid, you know, give people something to say in the verse maybe, but then give them something to sing in the chorus. <laughs> and if, if all you do is just keep hammering lyric, 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 I got to say this, got to see, you yeah, know. To put every ooh, single ooh, thought that I've ever had in this song. <laughs> right. Yeah. That that happens a lot in with beginning country writers. I don't know about pop. Mm. Uh, yeah. But you can take what seemingly what's a line that's, you probably heard a hundred times before, but if you can put it in a, a chorus and make that the hook of the line and give it a, a melody and a production and some interesting phrasing, hell, do it. You don't you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to polish up a few spokes. I like that. I like that. <laughs> you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just polish up a few spokes. <laughs> well, thank but, you yeah, so I mean, much, Bob. Yeah. Any last well, last thoughts for our audience here? Uh, no, just uh, good luck to anybody who wants to write songs. I'm still doing it. If I get a song idea, I will write it uh, just for my own enjoyment, my own edification. Even if you're never going to be a commercially successful writer, write a song for your folks. Write a song for a friend that's going through a hard time. Write a song for yourself to process what you're going through. It's an incredibly, incredibly valuable thing to do on its own and on its own merit. And then if it reaches anybody beyond that, that's a bonus. But don't just keep coming back to that place where it's real, it's honest, and that'll serve you better than trying to to chase down what's on the charts this week. Lovely. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Bob. All right. Uh, A motor mouth for how long? An hour, probably? (laughs) About 50 minutes. So... (laughs) Perfect. That's what I do. All right. Thanks, Sierra. Yeah. Another great conversation with Bob. We talked about his long career and everything from confidence to money to the legal side of things, his experience with publishers, and so, so much more. So let me know what you thought about this episode on Instagram and TikTok at songwriters underscore unblocked. And if you're interested in more from the podcast, sign up for our weekly newsletter, Songwriter Sundays, where you'll receive weekly insights, episode updates, songwriting prompts, and more. Link in the show notes. This is Songwriters Unblocked. Thanks for listening.